are so kind. Thank you for pumping me up this morning. Well, good morning, church. It is great to be in worship with all of you this morning. I'm Emma Murphy, the Congregational Care Pastor here at Mount Horeb. And as Pastor Jeff said, it is my first time preaching in the auditorium. When I came on staff four years ago, I told our leadership, you know, preaching's like really not my thing. And they obviously didn't listen because over the last several years, I have had the honor of preaching several times over in the sanctuary and at different special events we have here as well. But this is my first time preaching on this big stage, and it's a bit intimidating. I was telling someone earlier that in the sanctuary, you know, you've got like the massive pulpit. You can't even see your legs. And in here, I feel so exposed. Like it makes me wanna do something with my legs or something, I don't know. But I am excited to be here, thrilled to open up God's word with all of you and continue in the sermon series, A Summer with Wesley. If you were here last week, you got a great introduction from Pastor Trevor on why we're even doing this series and a brief look into John Wesley's life, the inspiration for the next several weeks of messages. But if you weren't here, I'll just give you a little brief overview to catch you up. John Wesley is the founder of Methodism, which is the movement that really birthed Mount Horeb. Methodism was and continues to be Mount Horeb's historical and theological roots. Many of you know that we have been a United Methodist Church for over 100 years. We have recently separated from the United Methodist denomination. And actually today, as Pastor Jeff said, is our first Sunday that we are not officially United Methodist. It's kind of weird to say that. So we're in a bit of a transition stage until our next congregational vote in just a couple weeks. But with all that said, our roots, our foundation, our heritage is all originated in the Methodist movement that began with John Wesley. And we thought it was important for our congregation to understand where we come from and what makes Mount Horeb, Mount Horeb. And so let me preface it with this, because I think it's really important. This is not just a sermon series about John Wesley. Even though we are covering different aspects of his life when it comes to the foundational elements of our faith, we understand that Mount Horeb is a melting pot. We have people in this room from all different denominations, from the Baptist tradition, Presbyterians, Church of God, Pentecostal, Catholic, so many unique perspectives in this room. And honestly, I'm thankful for that because we all get to learn from one another and we get to come here and worship together. So maybe the thought for some of you of studying John Wesley for the next several weeks seems kind of boring because you didn't grow up Methodist. Or maybe you did grow up Methodist and you just don't really care. But I'm gonna tell you that this isn't just about John Wesley. John Wesley's, all of his core foundations in his theology are rooted in scripture. So it's not just a John Wesley sermon series, it's also a biblical sermon series where we're going to dig deeper into the foundational elements of our faith. Last week, Pastor Trevor talked about the importance of having a genuine conversion experience. Salvation and a real relationship with Jesus are vital to our faith. And this week, we're going to expand off of that topic and talk about what's next. John Wesley said in one of his sermons, the church changes the world not by making converts, but by making disciples. You have this genuine conversion experience, but what do you do next, right? Today we're going to dive deeper into the idea of discipleship and its significance. 
When you hear the word discipleship, you probably think about a lot of different things. Maybe you think about spiritual disciplines like reading your Bible or praying or coming to church, spending time in solitude with God. Maybe you think about your small group or maybe you think about different spiritual mentors that were in your life. All of these things are different aspects of discipleship. Throughout the course of my life, I have had the unique experience in different types of discipleship. But for me, my first core memory of being discipled is that of my early childhood. When my parents got married, my dad grew up Southern Baptist and my mom grew up Catholic but was non-practicing and she already had my older brother from her first marriage and they knew that they wanted to raise their children in the church. And so they visited all different denominations and eventually settled in the Methodist church because as my mom will tell you, it's a good happy medium. And so from the very beginning, they started to instill the core doctrines of the gospel into our lives, into the lives of me and my three brothers. They would pray with me. They taught me how to pray. They would read Bible stories with me. I even remember them buying me my first like real Bible that I could actually read. It was the Odyssey Bible, if any of you guys know what that is. It had like cool comics in it and everything. But they were also really active in our church. My dad was an usher every Sunday and still pretty much is. My mom was active with the kids ministry and is now the director of children's ministry there. We were there every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, at every special event. Y'all, we lived in that building and we loved it. We absolutely loved it. And I truly believe that I would not be here today standing on this stage preaching to all of you if it weren't for my parents instilling those core doctrines, those foundational elements of our, of our faith from the very beginning, discipling me from the very beginning of my life. Well, the same is true for John Wesley's life. When we take a look at his life, we know that he grew up to be this amazing evangelist that rode on horseback and spread the gospel more times than we can count, but it didn't start there. His parents were also extremely influential in his relationship with God and ultimately shaped his own theology and structure of discipleship in the Methodist movement. His mother, Susanna Wesley, was particularly instrumental in his life. Susanna was pretty much a boss. She bore 19 children. I don't know how she did that. And only 10 of them survived past infancy, but she, she poured her heart and her soul into these kids. You see, Susanna lived a life that served as a model for her children. Her utmost priority was serving God with her life and demonstrating to her kids that an active relationship with God was very important. She had quite a strict method of parenting. She said, in order to form the minds of children, the first thing to be done is to conquer their will. I insist upon conquering the wills of children betimes because this is the only foundation for a religious education. I guess if you have that many children, you do have to have a method to the madness, and surely Susanna did. She instilled in them this incredibly ordered spiritual life through the practice of spiritual disciplines, so much so that she encouraged her children to also methodize their lives in this way. You can see that had a great impact on John's own development of theology. So as John grew older, he ended up attending Oxford University, and upon graduation, he was admitted into the priesthood of the Church of England. He then became a fellow at Lincoln College in Oxford in 1729. 
and developed what became known as the Holy Club. And that club that began as just a group of people meeting, studying the Bible, praying and worshiping together, eventually spread to the entire Methodist movement. From the very beginning of John Wesley's life, with the help of his parents, especially his mother, he learned what it looked like to truly be a disciple every single day. And as he grew older and made that faith his own, he realized that having a genuine conversion experience was only the beginning. He knew that being a Christian did not simply mean living this outwardly Christian life that there is something deeper and more important that happens when someone experiences this spiritual conversion, a life that is transformed. What's happening in here should be pouring out in all aspects of one's life. John Wesley puts it this way, there's a difference between a nominal Christian and a real Christian. Or in one of his sermons, he said this, almost Christians versus altogether. Christians. A nominal or almost Christian definitely appears to be one from the outside. Almost Christians have morals. They are honest. They don't steal. They believe in the need for justice. They attend church. They participate in religious activities. They're sincere in their actions and they want to do good to as many people as they possibly can. Sounds kind of like how we would describe a lot of Christians, right? But there's an interesting story in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19 that explains this pretty well. This is how the narrative goes. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me what is good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. You see, this man could obey the commandments to practice Christianity in such a way that he looked good from the outside. He didn't murder. He didn't steal, didn't commit adultery. He honored his parents. He cared for others. But because his allegiance was to his money, because his God was his wealth and not the one true God, he couldn't truly live into this genuine relationship with the Lord. I think this is a really tough reality for many of us in the room. If someone were to ask us what a disciple of Jesus looks like, what does a Christ follower look like? We'd probably name all of these characteristics of an almost Christian. But that definition falls short. An almost disciple of Christ is more concerned with following a moral code than serving our Savior. An almost Christian wants to do good for humanity, but simply because it's the right thing to do. An almost, but not quite, disciple. 
if you know my husband just a little, like just a little, you know that the boy loves to fish and he works for a fishing company. And so this summer, what they're doing, it's really cool, they're doing digital tournaments. And what that means is they all have the same measuring tool and they can go out and they can fish anywhere with you know, certain rules and regulations and they have all month to catch up to five measurable fish. It's worth, um, they measure based on length instead of weight. And so not to brag or anything, but Truman did win the month of May. Yeah, I know, pretty proud of him. And I think that it went to his head a little bit because the month of June, he like needed to defend his title. So he was going out every day after work to these different ponds around our house. By the way, shameless plug here. If you know of any ponds, let me know because the July tournament just started. Uh, But anyway, so he would go out and he would fish in these ponds and he would call me on the way home and Poor guy, he was having a bit of a tough month. He would call me and I would ask him the same questions, you know, so how did it go? Did you catch anything? And his silence, you know, answered the questions for me. But every once in a while, he would say, I hooked a big one, but he got off. I hooked the big kahuna, as he'd say, but it got off. So you almost caught the fish, but not quite. And almost catching the fish is not gonna win you the tournament. Almost catching the fish is not gonna change anything. When Wesley had his Aldersgate experience that Trevor preached on last week and his heart was strangely warmed, it changed everything. He went from being a knowledgeable and practicing Christian to one with genuine spiritual conversion that completely transformed his life. Maybe some of you in the room can point to that very moment or a time in your life where everything finally clicked, where you made the decision that what you were doing was almost working, but not really. That going through the motions of being a Christian was almost fulfilling, but not entirely. And you wanted more. You wanted a true relationship with God. And when that happened, your life started to look really different. That is what separates a real Christian from a nominal one. That is what begins the transformation from an almost Christian to an altogether Christian. You have all the marks of the almost Christian, but there are several key additions that begin to take place in your life because in everything that you do, you want to love and serve God. In Matthew's gospel, there is a pretty famous passage that gives us a better and deeper insight of what an altogether Christian looks like. Throughout the gospels, there are a few times where Jesus predicts his own death. The context for the passage I'm about to read for you in Matthew 16 is the first instance of this in the gospel of Matthew. Jesus has just asked his disciples who people say he is, and their response is, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then he turns the question on them. But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter responds, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. But shortly after this, Jesus begins to tell his disciples what he's about to endure. That soon he will die and be raised from the dead. Peter, who just claims that he was the Messiah, rebukes Jesus, saying that those things will never happen to him. And Jesus calls him Satan, which 
is a little harsh, but he's telling him that Peter is more focused on human concerns rather than the things of God. And so Jesus then turns to his disciples and he says this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Though short, this one verse illuminates a few important implications for what it means to be a real Christian, an altogether Christian, a true disciple of Jesus. First, Jesus tells his followers that whoever wants to be his disciple must deny themselves. Deny yourself. I think often when we hear phrases such as this, our first instinct is to associate denying ourselves with denying the things that we want, like material things, like a big house or money or land or a boat. But if we take a deeper look at this word in the original language, we get a better understanding of what Jesus means for discipleship. The Greek word for deny here is aparneomai, it's hard to say. When the verb is used other times in the Gospels, it refers to disassociation from another person. It's a word that's used when Jesus predicts that Peter will deny him three times. Many of us know that story well, but when Peter denies Jesus, he's literally saying that he doesn't know the man, that he has no connection to him whatsoever. And so this idea, when we look at the idea of denying self, when it comes to the definition of discipleship in this passage, Jesus is not telling his followers that their wants and their desires are wrong, that they have to deprive themselves of things that they want. It's not an act to resist temptation. Rather, he's using this language to accentuate where their primary faithfulness lies. Is it to their own selves or is it to Jesus? Is it to him? In this world, we often make idols out of self and our own image. Since the fall, we have sought to be our own gods, to protect these identities that we have made for ourselves at any cost. However, the problem is that there are eight billion other people on this planet that are trying to do the same thing, keep their self sovereign. We can't be a true disciple of Jesus and also a disciple of ourselves. We can't do both. You can't mix your self-righteousness with his righteousness. Rather, when we deny self, it means that we are ultimately dying to our old self and living a life in full surrender to Jesus Christ. I read this week in an article that this means Whenever your self-desire, self-fulfillment, self-made identity, self-chosen way of doing things, whenever yourself gets in the way of your relationships with family, with the body of Christ, and definitely with God, when you make these identity-building things into idols is when they need to be denied. One of my favorite passages is in Philippians 2, and it says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. This is the path that Christ took. And it is the path that we take when we deny ourselves. We say, it is not my will, but yours be done, Lord. Church, being a real disciple means that we deny self so that we can fully surrender to Jesus. And this surrender, therefore, is the basis for our entire life. 
It is what shapes our choices, our actions, our attitude. We do it because we want his identity to live in and shine through us. Next, Jesus tells his followers that whoever wants to be his disciple must take up their cross. Take up your cross. This notion of taking up your cross flows from denying self. And it's interesting that Jesus uses this metaphor before he even takes up his own cross and is crucified. But this imagery would have been really familiar to his disciples. Crucifixion at that time as a form of execution was for those who had rebelled against authority. It was a way of showing how helpless people were when it came to the power of Rome. And it was a threat to others that if they opposed the power of the Roman government, they too could be crucified. It was a horrific way to die, and even more so a symbolic statement or a political statement of saying, we are in control and you are nothing. So in saying, take up one's cross, Jesus is referring to the torturous punishment to, that comes before the humiliating execution. You see, criminals would be forced to carry the crossbeam to the site where they would be killed. It was a way of showing complete submission to Roman authority that the person's last act in their life would be to carry this instrument that would soon be their demise. So when Jesus tells his disciples to take up their cross, what he's saying is that it is a call to be as submitted to him as a condemned criminal was to their death. But unlike the criminals who had no choice, this call to take up our cross is a choice. It's a daily choice for us. When we fully surrender our lives to Jesus, when we deny ourselves, when we have this deep love of God, we are then propelled to live a life in full submission to him. And not only that, but imitating his own selfless and sacrificial service of taking up that cross. Jesus is reiterating the point that being a true disciple means that we are willing to imitate Christ by sharing in his sufferings. It means daily sacrificing for others. It means facing shame and rejection. Billy Graham has a quote in regards to this verse. He says, Jesus means that he was going to die as a criminal and he wanted you to go with him. That means that you go back to your school, back to your home, back to your community, and you live for Christ even though they crucify you. This might seem really harsh at first, allowing ourselves to be the target of judgment and persecution. There's great sacrifice and commitment when it comes to being a disciple. There's a significant cost. But y'all, there's also great joy. Hebrews 12.2 exclaims, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ faced the painful suffering and death on the cross, but his shed blood, his death, resulted in the invitation of salvation and eternal life for all of us. There is so much joy on the other side of the cross. The peace, the hope, the blessings that pour out of submitting to Christ for us far outweigh the cost. It's the utmost assurance that God is always with us no matter what. And not only speaking in eternal terms, but there is so much joy right now in asking God to see the opportunities before us. 
The last couple weeks at Mount Horeb have been marked by a lot of loss. We've had several families in our community that have lost people that they love. And one of my favorite parts of my role here as the congregational care pastor at Mount Horeb is that I get to come alongside these families. I get to love on them and pray for them and help them plan a service to remember and to celebrate their loved one. But what people don't understand is that it literally takes a village to do a funeral well. We have to have a worship leader, a pianist. We need someone to run sound. We need someone to do pro presenter, to have the lyrics on the screens. We need our facilities team to help make the sanctuary look really nice and to set up the student room for a visitation. I need volunteers to come in to help stand at the guest book and greet or to pass out bulletins for the service. I even need our communications team to help program the time to open up the doors for the service. It takes a lot of people. And I know, I understand that serving for a funeral is not glamorous. It is not the most fun thing to do. But I can tell you how many people have come up to me, not only members of the family of the deceased, but people from our community that have never stepped foot in our church that have said to me how welcoming, how inviting, how loving, and how they saw Jesus shine through every part of the funeral. Maybe the opportunities that God has before us right now aren't extremely fun or desirable, but God is and will use them for good and for his joy. So where can we take up our cross right now and serve others? Who can we tell about the love of Jesus? Where can we help someone in need? Finally, Jesus tells the disciples that whoever wants to be his disciple must follow me. Follow me. My brother Doug is an incredible faith mentor in my own life. He's my older brother, so of course he has poured tons of information into his little sister, good and bad. But the reason I love Doug so much is that he is one of those people in in my life that really stays in tune with the Holy Spirit. And I will never forget my junior year of college, he came up to Anderson, he took me out to lunch and told me before telling my parents, probably not a good idea, that he was going to move to Southeast Asia and be a missionary. And while I was super sad that he was gonna be on the other side of the world, I was thrilled. I was thrilled for him to know that not only he heard this call, that he was going. And also as his little sister who was pursuing ministry myself as a junior in college, it was really inspirational for me to be able to say, okay, God, I wanna be obedient to your calling. Where, what do you have next for me? You see, Doug continues to amaze me. He spent many years in Asia, came home during COVID and discerned what was next for him and his wife. They ended up going back overseas to Thailand and have recently come back to a little old fountain in South Carolina and are now, and he's now serving as the worship and production director at a church there. Every step of the way, praying for the Holy Spirit to guide him, following Jesus wherever he led. In the scriptures, we constantly hear Jesus say to people, follow me. He says it 13 times in the Gospels. When he's walking beside the Sea of Galilee and sees Peter and Andrew fishing, Jesus says, follow me. And they left what they were doing and they followed him. And a very similar experience happens just a couple verses later with James and John. 
Later on in Matthew's gospel, Jesus sees Matthew, the tax collector working, and Jesus says, follow me. Matthew gets up what he's doing and he follows. In the story of the rich young ruler that I read just a few moments ago, Jesus tells him to follow me. We know the story of that. We know the ending of that story. But this is the recurring invitation that we hear from Jesus in the Gospels. It's an invitation to relationship with him. It's the invitation of obedience. It's the invitation to a life of true discipleship. It's not forced. It's not a command. It's an invitation. And that invitation is offered to all of us today. Maybe you're sitting there right now and you're a little overwhelmed on how you can even start with all of this, how you could accept this invitation with yearning to grow deeper in your relationship with God. And there are so many different avenues for starting and getting plugged in. In our Methodist heritage, John Wesley had kind of a tiered discipleship system that we've incorporated here at Mount Hora that you probably don't even realize. Societies were the largest meeting group. They would meet weekly and they would worship together. It's kind of what we do here on Sunday mornings. And then out of those societies, there were classes formed, about 12 men or women. They would also meet weekly for prayer and holding each other accountable. And they would ask the question to each other, how is it with your soul? And so in our Mount Horeb context, this looks like Sunday school classes and small groups of people in different ages and stages of life. And then the smallest group that expanded out of that were called bands. And they were about five people of similar life stages. They would meet and they would ask hard questions about their relationship with Christ, temptations they're facing, sins that they might need to confess, demonstrating great forgiveness and freedom that comes from a relationship with Christ. And so for us, we have recently launched our core groups that are based off of this very idea. And these are incredible ways to dive deeper into a relationship with Christ, the community of the believers here, and a greater understanding of what it means to stay in tune with the Spirit and walk in obedience. Jesus says, follow me. And this obedience doesn't mean that you're necessarily gonna go across the world like my brother did but it means saying yes to God's invitation. It means staying in step with the Spirit. It means being in the Word and applying those truths to your life. It is a daily committed relationship with Jesus. In John Wesley's sermon, The Great Privilege of Those That Are Born of God, he says this amazing quote, the life of God in the soul of a believer immediately and necessarily implies the continual inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, God's breathing into the soul and the soul's breathing back what it first receives from God. A continual action of God upon the soul, the reaction of the soul upon God, an unceasing presence of God, the loving, pardoning God manifested to the heart. But God does not continue to act upon the soul unless the soul reacts upon God. He first loves us and manifests himself unto us. He will not continue to breathe into our soul unless our soul breathes toward him again, unless our love and prayer and thanksgiving return to him. 
Church, if you hear anything that I say today, hear this. Real discipleship is responsive. While God breathes into our souls, we must also breathe back towards him. There's a responsibility on our part. You see, nominal Christians, almost Christians, they look the part, they even act the part. They go to church, they go to religious events, they wanna help others, they believe in doing the right things, but it stops there. They aren't consistently breathing back toward God. They don't long to grow. They aren't yearning for deeper relationship and fellowship with God. But altogether, Christians, real disciples are not only listening to Christ's invitation to follow him, but they're getting up and they're going. They're daily choosing a life in surrender. They're seeing the joy of relationship with Christ, even in the midst of suffering. They're obediently seeking the will of God. And while this isn't always an easy task, while this is a daily choice, it is one they are striving towards. They are breathing back towards God again and again and again because they know that what he has for them is better than a life they could ever offer themselves. So where do you find yourself today, church? Are you just stuck going through the motions or are you breathing back towards God, denying yourself, taking up your cross and following him? He wants this relationship with you. He wants your surrender. He wants you to obediently follow him. Will you accept his invitation today? Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving Father, we are thankful for you this morning. We are thankful that you went to the cross, this humiliating death, and you died for us so that we could be offered this invitation, this invitation of a new and a better life with you. And so God, we pray today that you will work in our hearts, that you will do something new in us, that we will want to grow deeper in relationship with you, God. Jesus, you are good, you are faithful, you are so filled with grace. And today we thank you for all of those things. We lift them up in your strong name.